when you see the word revival, what comes to your mind? You either see that word or you hear that word. Uh, the sign outside the church next to the road says revival. Monday night, Tuesday night, 7 p.m., evangelist, musician, revival. Are you hear that word? Are you read about it? What comes to your mind? A true revival, a spiritual awakening is what we see here in Jonah chapter 3. We see an unusual movement of the Holy Spirit that brings a conviction of sin, of the need for a Savior, with a willingness to turn from our own ways to pursue the ways and word of God. Now the Holy Spirit is responsible for any conversion, anyone adopted into the family. There's no salvation apart from the Holy Spirit working. An individual conversion or small group. But a revival is when it's a large group. Many who are awakened by the Holy Spirit of what? Our sin, our need of a Savior, and the Holy Spirit enabling and persuading that Christ is the Savior we need. That apart from Him, there's no way to enter into the Father's family. Oh, we look at Scripture and see revivals. We see in Scripture, and we see in history a wonderful, wonderful work of revival. Here in Jonah chapter 3, I believe we have a picture, a portrait of what a revival and awakening is. What is it? It's a spiritual awakening for the honor of Christ and the joy of his people. It's a spiritual work of grace that awakens people. Why? So that Christ is honored and his people have joy in him. Let's look again at this third chapter beginning. Let's see again what's happening. Let's see this portrait of what God has done, is doing in many places today, and our hope our passion is that he'll do it again throughout his nations. Here in Jonah 3, this portrait of what a real spiritual awakening revival, how it may look. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God had told Jonah earlier, go to Nineveh, preach. Jonah said, no way, I'll not go. He was a Christian. But he refused, he disobeyed, he rebelled in his heart. But God, in his grace, is giving him another opportunity. Jonah, verse 2, go to that great city of Nineveh, 
Proclaim to it, those people, the message I give you. God is not suggesting Jonah. Jonah, I suggest you go. Nor do I recommend that you go. It's a command. God has the right and authority to command us what to believe and the way to live. He commands it. He commands it. He commanded to Jonah. If you're in his family, he commands it to us. This is what you're to believe. This is what you're to do. This is the way you're to live. He commands it. Go a second time. This time. And you preach the word that God says to you. Do you understand, Jonah? Do you understand? Jonah understood this time. So, verse 3, he obeys the word this time. And he goes to Nineveh. Nineveh was such a large city, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire, one of the most powerful nations, empires in the whole world. And they took great pride in the evil they inflicted upon their ones they defeated. They were proud of the atrocities, of the cruelty, of the brutality. Often long, drawn out death upon their victims. They were proud of that. It was a great city in its sin, but in its size. We're told that perhaps it was eight Nine, ten miles in circumference. We're told by archaeologists that approximately, it is believed, 120,000 people live there. It's a great city. So it would take time for Jonah to enter and begin that preaching and that teaching and that warning. He would go and he would have to stop preached. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And he would go down farther. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Now we know he said that. We're not limited. He probably preached more. But we know he said this. And the Holy Spirit was in this message. And the people were awakened to their sin, that they really were evil and wicked and coming under the judgment of God. They were awakened to that fact. And we see here, it was a great city. It took three days. Forty days, Nineveh will be overthrown, will be destroyed, and you will suffer. Verse 5, the Ninevites, they heard the word, they believed it because the Holy Spirit was in this preaching and teaching, this warning. They believed God. They believed this man had been sent by God and they became convicted of their sin, of their wickedness, that they were going to be judged. And they proclaimed a fast. They're changed in their heart and they began changed in their conduct. What was a fast? Here, all the people, it says from the greatest to the least, 
began fasting, going without food, even going without drink, water. They even (laughs) made the animals fast. From the greatest, from the king himself, who took off his royal robes and left his throne and went into the ashes. Evidence outwardly of repentance of sackcloth. From the wealthiest, most noble, important person to even the slave, the least of the least. That's a picture of what God has done is doing and can do again in many places. Look, they believed what they heard and they became frightened. They were scared because they knew they deserved what was about to happen unless God had mercy. A picture, a portrait of what a revival can be. Verse 6. This warning of destruction by God reached the king himself. And there we see he took off his royal robes. He left his throne. He humbled himself before his people. And the people followed his leading. In verse 7, this proclamation, he made a new law for all of those under his care. This is a decree. This is a law from God himself. Do not let us, not even our animals, our herds, our flocks, don't even taste anything. No food, no drink. Verse 8, but let the people, let the animals, they even covered the animals in sackcloth. Let everyone do what? Call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts us of our sin. He convicts us that we have offended a holy, righteous God. He convicts us. What does he say? We're evil. We're wicked. Our behavior is violent. We've we've offended a holy God. At all measures, whatever it takes, let's seek the God who judges sin. What a picture, a portrait of humility of brokenness, of desperation. Here is a portrait of the Holy Spirit awakening people. Not just a few, but a mass of people where the people respond, believing and humbling themselves and praying urgently, call out to this God who is angry, who is going to punish us, and we deserve it. And let us seek Him. Let us seek him. Maybe he's not obligated. Well, have mercy on us. Folk, that's what we need. A cry for mercy. In my heart, perhaps your heart, I think God owes it to me. He owes us a good life. 
He owes us. Look how good we are. No, no, no. I'm so indebted to the late Dr. R.C. Sproul with others. Dr. Sproul and his teaching, both in preaching and writing, I'm just a new appreciation for him in the last two years. Where Dr. Sproul in his writing and teaching, now he's with the Lord, but with Ligonier Ministries. Dr. Sproul in his preaching and teaching warns us, especially as Americans, even as believers, we've made up a God who is not biblical. We forget God is a God of justice who must punish sin. He's a God of holiness. We've got to see the whole picture of who God is. Too often the understanding of our God is not biblical. We've made him into who we want him to be. He owes it to us. If we do this, then he's going to do this. He may, but he's not obligated. It's mercy we need. We need to know, as Dr. Sproul would say, the holiness of God that will make us tremble, hopefully tremble with joy and gladness, but tremble and fear his anger. A biblical view of who God is. He's the God who must punish sin. But the good news is Christ is willing and able to take the punishment we deserve upon himself. That's good news. Either we will be punished or Christ in our place. Is he going to take the punishment you and I deserve? Verse 9, who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. He may. He's not obligated. It'll be mercy. But God, family, friends, guests, do you know that the God who is, who is holy has fierce anger? He's the God of fierce anger. Oh, he's also the God of mercy and grace and there's joy in that. In verse 10, verse 10, when God saw how the people responded, how they turned from their evil ways, he did relent. He did not bring on them what they deserve that he had threatened. What do we learn about God in the Scriptures? Always come to the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures teach about God? First, we see he is the God of grace. He is the God who is willing to treat us as we do not deserve. Did you hear that? That's grace. His willingness to treat us with favor that we do not deserve. That's grace. Hallelujah. 
And that grace only comes through Christ. He's also the God of mercy who is willing and able to not treat us as we deserve. Grace, he treats us as we do not deserve. Mercy, he chooses not to treat us as we deserve. But he's also the God who hates sin and will punish it. Either punish us or let Christ take the punishment you and I deserve. But punishment is reality. Oh, Jonah understood this. Remember, that's the reason he disobeyed God the first time when God commanded him to go to Nineveh. He knew truth about God. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, 1 through 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. God, I'm angry with you. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Because I know what you're like. I'm not going. You're a God of mercy. You're a God of grace. You're a God who is willing to forgive those people, and I don't want them forgiven. I want you to give them what they deserve. That's what he says. I'm paraphrasing. Look, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord. He said this to God. Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, that is what I tried to forestall. That's the reason I went to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were slow to anger. I know you're abounding in love, that you, you're willing to forgive sinners, cruel, evil sinners. And I didn't want you to do it. And that you may turn and not give them the calamity they deserved. Now, Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Kill me. Take me. I don't want to live. I don't want you to forgive them. How is it, family, with your heart, with my heart? Are there people, are there nations, are there individuals with whom you want God to treat them as you feel they deserve? And they may deserve it. How is it with your heart? Repent. Repent of that sin. There are people I have hated. I've had to ask God to forgive me. What do we learn about us in the scriptures? We're evil. We're wicked. We are rebellious. What do we need? We need a revival. We need a revival. What is a revival? A revival is a powerful, unusual working of the Holy Spirit. It's a working that is not the norm. It's unusual. 
working of the Holy Spirit to do what? Awaken Christians to our sins and converts the lost, brings us to that place where we begin seeing the beauty of Christ, the excellence of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the majesty of Christ, that He alone is Savior. He alone is Lord God. That then what? Leads us to obedience and to worship. Family, that's what we need. I need it. Dr. Tim Keller in his teaching from Jonah tells about the people of South Korea who at a particular church, God began doing a revival. And the revival that God began doing in that church that spread was this. God began convicting the Christians of their lack of forgiveness against the Japanese who had been so abusive and cruel and the torture and the death and the inhumane treatment that the Japanese had inflicted upon the Koreans. But the portrait of revival that began was God began working in the Christians of South Korea in their hatred and lack of forgiveness toward the Japanese. They began repenting of their sins. They began changing their ways. They began asking God to create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit, a right Christ-like attitude. I like Dr. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' definition of revival. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most brilliant thinkers we have ever known, lived in the 1700s. Brilliant thinker, preacher, evangelist, missionary. This is what he says about a revival. Jonathan Edwards. From the fall of man to our day, this work of redemption, this work of salvation has mainly been carried on by remarkable communications of the Spirit of God. Any good work must come from the Holy Spirit. Though there be a more constant influence of God's Spirit, always in some degree, whenever there's salvation, it's because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But there is some unusual, and I'm paraphrasing, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards carrying out this work, always has been the remarkable outpouring of the Holy Spirit on special seasons. You see these words he uses? Some degree must be in every conversion. But the greatest work is the carrying on in this remarkable, what? Outpouring of the Holy Spirit on special occasions. And that's what's happening in Nineveh. That's what's happening in Nineveh. A special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Certainly we need that. I need it. We need it in our nation and the nations of the world. 
I like what is said in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number 89 and answer. 89. How is the word made effectual to salvation? How does the preached, taught, shared word of God bring salvation into God's family? How? The Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God does what? He makes the reading and especially the preaching of the Scriptures that outward means of convincing us of our sin and converting us who? Sinners. And of building up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Live every day needing the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin, to convince you of the righteousness that there is in Christ. Depend on the Holy Spirit every day that leads to worship and obedience to Jesus Christ that leads to obedience and worship of Christ. And then lastly, again from our catechism, question number 90, 9-0. How is the word to be read? How are we to hear it? That this may become effectual to salvation. How are we to read the word? How are you to hear it taught or preached? What, what is our responsibility what is our obligation? Ah, I like this answer based on Scripture. That the Word of God may become effectual to salvation. We must, we must attend to the Word. How? With diligence, with preparation, with prayer. Receive it with faith and love and lay it up in your heart and practice it in your life. going to a Bible study, going to a small group, coming to a worship service. How are we to properly prepare for the full impact that Christ intends? Come, prepare yourself with diligence, with preparation. Are you prepared? Spiritually, yes. But are you prepared mentally? Are you prepared physically? My wife was so good at helping our family prepare for worship on the Lord's Day. We had five young children, and we would begin getting ready on Saturday afternoon. You know, laying the clothes out. You don't wait till, Monday, you don't wait till Sunday morning. Laying the clothes out, getting the shoes, the socks, the things that are needed. And then prepared in our schedule. Are you prepared Sunday morning? Are you prepared? What's your schedule like on Saturday? What's it like on Saturday night? Are you ready for Sunday? Is there a sense of it? We're going to worship. We're going to meet with God. We're going to meet with his people. Guard your Saturdays. Guard your Saturday nights, your schedules, so that you're ready for Sunday morning. And of course, guard Sunday morning. 
What's more important in your life? Is it Christ? Is it his word? Or is it... What's most important? What's most important? Your schedules, the choices you make determine what's more important. And your children and your family, they're watching. They know by your choices what's most important. Sports, they know. They know by the choices we make and the choices we choose not to make. This is important. How is it, family? I want to say in love, are you prepared? Is there a sense of diligence? Is there a sense of prayer that you might receive the word, that he'll give you faith and love and lay it up in your heart? My wife and I were classmates with Bill and Grace Harding in college. Bill had been reared in Ethiopia as a missionary child, then came to the States for college, and we were classmates. Later, as an adult, himself with family, he and Grace had the privilege of going back to Ethiopia for, quote, a Bible conference. Ethiopia had gone under communist rule, the rule of communism, where they were not able to gather as they wanted. But at the fall of communism, they wanted to have some special services. I'll call it a Bible conference. And the word began to spread. Remember, they didn't have the technology we have 40 years ago, but the word spread, hey, we're going to come together, we're going to worship. We've not been able to do that like we want. And so the word got out. The people started coming. And some would walk three days to get there. And all they had is what they either were wearing or could bring. A little food, clothing, maybe a blanket. See, no convention center. (laughs) They met under a tree, a large field. No food service. No buffets like I enjoy. They brought their blankets. They found a spot to sleep wherever they could. And all the music, the worship, the prayers, all of these people, coming together where they sleep on their blanket outside. Bill and Grace with a few more were able to stay in a building and during the night they were awakened by the downpour of rain and the sound of singing Singing, adoration, praise, thanksgiving to God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit for allowing them to come together to worship. The teaching, the preaching, the sharing. What is that? It's a portrait of revival. 
It's a portrait of revival. At the end of the conference, they were poor themselves. They wanted to give an offering. What do you have? Well, I've got a blanket. I've got some utensils. I've got a little food. I've got an extra coat. I've got an extra. And so they started bringing it to share with others. And then as they were about to conclude, a woman back in the back began running, running, running toward the offering. Not to see what she could get, but as she came to the pile of offerings, she threw herself down on top of the, threw herself on the offering. She just wanted to give herself. What is happening? It's a portrait of revival, a humbling of ourself of devoting ourselves to prayer, a seeking of God's favor, a willingness to turn from our selfish, arrogant, evil ways. Whatever it takes, Father, whatever it takes for the adoration, the obedience, the worship, of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. Whatever it takes, take what you will. Take it. Give what is needed for obedience and worship to Christ. Before I lead us in worship, I encourage you quietly, speak to God. In your heart, ask him whatever it takes, whatever it takes to take from you, to give to you this kind of Christ-honoring, joy-giving obedience for you, for our nation, and yes, for the nations of the world. So let's pray now. Will you pray silently and then I will pray. Father, thank you that Christ willingly, willingly took your judgment and punishment against sin. On behalf of all of those you've given to him, thank you. Now, Father, may we respond by wholehearted, sincere, passionate, contagious obedience and worship to Christ out of gratitude. We're asking you for a Holy Spirit revival, an outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon our lives, our nation, but not just us, Father, the nations of your world that will lead us into obedience and sincere worship 
to Jesus Christ. Amen.